Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. Today's quote is, Life's challenges are not supposed to paralyze you. They're supposed to help you discover who you are. And that quote was from Bernice Johnson Reagan. And on that note, Happy New Year, everyone. And I hope this year puts all your worries to rest and brings all your wishes to life. You know, the start of every new year is a bit like deja vu because we all hope that in some way, when the clock strikes midnight, we'll somehow or the other become transformed into the person we want to be or the person we're going to be through some sort of a new year resolution or another. And of course, that is a challenge in itself because no challenge is overcome instantly. And in fact, some challenges are there for a lifetime. I want my next guest to help inspire you to keep your New Year resolution lasting longer than it did last year. My guest is a man among men. He was born without arms, yet his outreach is beyond an ordinary person's reach. In his own mind, he's never been a victim, and in our minds, he will always be a victor. If you think life is challenging, then it's going to feel like a breeze once you've heard him speak. Just listening to him and how he approaches his life will give you a different perspective of yours. It's an honor to have on the show Mr. Alvin Law. Welcome to the show, Alvin. Thank you, Vip. It's great to be here. So, sir, uh, sir give us, give our listeners a little account of how you were born without arms. Uh, some listeners might recall an era between 1957 and around 1963 that mm. a morning sickness medication that was invented in Germany and then exported around the world called thalidomide, uh, deformed babies. Now that word alone uh, is one that I, I'm, I'm always a bit, you know, uh, have a problem with, is, right. is the negativity of the word. But the fact is that people were born mostly uh, with uh, limbs, whether it was uh, affecting their, their hands with, uh, you know, two or three fingers missing all the way to people that have been born without arms or legs. And I was born without arms in the summer of 1960 in Western Canada. And then how did your parents react? Well, you know, let's remember the time frame. It was 1960, so the idea of what they saw when they had this armless child was just too much for them. Mm. There was also some advice from medical people that they enlisted because this was such a shock to the community uh, that the, the prognosis was simple, that I was simply going to be destined for institutionalization and uh, I would probably live in a, in a care facility and they needed to sign legal documents that would make that possible and... Uh, on the fourth day of my life, they signed those papers and uh, left the hospital without me. And uh, I guess by the time I was five days old, I was homeless. But uh, that's where the story uh, uh, takes a turn. And, and that's probably the most important part of my story, period. Well, I'm not going to let you stop. So you, you took a turn and take it from there. <laughs> well, I was put into foster care. And we hear about foster homes that uh, don't necessarily perform well. Uh, unfortunately, and, and with due respect, because we're, we're involved in the media today, the media don't always cover stories of successful foster homes. Mm. And uh, I am very proud to, to, to brag about mine, because I was taken in by uh, a 55-year-old foster mom. Her name was Hilda Law. Her husband, Jack Law, was not really a foster parent as much as he was married to the foster mom. And they were older, so they were really very much temporary parents. They would look after a lot of, of, uh, of children that were affected by uh, severe trauma. So they, they would take care of these kids for temporary times, maybe two weeks, maybe a month. Uh, they didn't think they'd keep me more than six weeks, but uh, eventually it seemed that nobody else was going to adopt me. 
And by the time that occurred, uh, they realized that I was becoming part of their family. So I've never known any other family. Uh, I, uh, I was not born with the last name Law, but it's the name that I've been using ever since I can remember. Have you ever met your real mother? I did, actually. Her name is Sophie. Uh, she lives in, in a little town called Melville, Saskatchewan. I was born in a town called Yorkton, Saskatchewan, which for geography purposes, for your listeners, it was uh, the farming province pretty much in the middle of Canada. Uh, and basically, uh, uh, it's a small community. So it wasn't like people didn't know about that little armless boy. And my family uh, were aware of me, but the rules of the time meant that they signed those papers. They uh, also accepted that they would not reach me. So it, it was really on my, uh, on my terms that I had to eventually uh, take a look at, at wanting to meet this family. But ironically, Vip, I, I didn't have a curiosity I know that might sound silly to some people out there that are, are, are adopted, but I was so delighted with my own family, with the family that raised me. In fact, quite frankly, I have a line that I use and I've used most of my life. Mm. It doesn't surprise me that I was given up for adoption. What surprised me is somebody took me home. So that contentedness was not something that, that you know, pushed me towards meeting them. But eventually I would do it in 1993 with the encouragement of my wife. And it really wasn't about finding my birth family as much as it was going to the person that gave me away and giving her a little bit of peace of mind that I turned out okay and that I've never been bitter and I've never held her to account for giving me away. In fact, they gave her credit for recognizing she just didn't have what it took to take care of, of such a, a, a challenged child. But isn't that very generous of you? You're saying that you never held any resentment. But when you go and meet her, how old were you at that time, 33? I would have been 31 years 31, old. 31, okay. Yeah. So, d- d- oh, sorry, 1993. 1991 is when I first made contact. 1993 is when we actually first saw each other face-to-face. Uh, not that that discrepancy is important to anybody else but me, but it took a couple of years to kind of line it all up, and I know that sounds like a really long time, mm. but it started with letters. It started with, uh, you know, a, a very slow progress in towards meeting her, but, you know, the story is a little bit bigger, Vip, and I don't want to, you know, make this too complicated, but... You know, this thalidomide drug was, was kind of a unique situation in that it was given to pregnant women who then had these deformed babies, and they held themselves accountable. Uh, but more importantly, they held themselves to a standard of guilt. And uh, when I learned about these stories when I was around 28 years old, I got involved in a Canadian commission looking at the lives of the survivors of this drug. And uh, I was stunned to see how many of these women did so poorly and and even more importantly never encouraged their children because they felt so terrible for what they believed was the cause of the disability Uh, as dr phil says there was no dog in our hunt in our family so hilda law raised me just like one of the family and i think that was the difference maker but i felt such a such a a powerful emotion about what it must have been like for sophie that i had to go meet her and, and at least say face to face i'm cool but you don't call sophie mom though no, because I think it takes more than giving birth to earn the title mom. Right. And then was it an emotional union when you first met? It wasn't like a, a reality television show. Uh, it was awkward. Mm. It was uncomfortable. There was a defensiveness, but particularly there was a defensiveness on the part of my siblings, uh, who, of course, you know, had to live with the results of the decision. I had two uh, siblings, a, a brother, Alan, and a sister, Elaine, who were older than me, but had to grow up in the wake of my family's decision not to bring me home from the hospital, and it caused a lot of turbulence. In fact, it caused so much turbulence that I lost my birth father 
in around 1983 mm. due to severe alcoholism. He started drinking heavily after I was given away, and uh, it took his life eventually. So, you know, there was a lot of turmoil around uh, that family, but it was very common amongst all of the thalidomide families. It was a very difficult struggle to deal with these challenges, but it was more of a function of the time VIP, I think, than the actual physical challenge. At least that's how I see it. But then do you sort of, do you keep in touch? Yeah, I try to see them as often as we can. I, I, I live about a 10-hour drive away in Calgary, Alberta now, and we've lived here for almost 15 years. But when we lived a little bit closer, we were about 90 minutes away. I would see them five or six times a year, uh, particularly in the summer when I would go to visit my, uh, my then uh, parents, mom and dad, who passed away. We lost mom in 96 and my dad in 2001. So, you know, at that point it was kind of interesting because I think Sophie and her family thought maybe, well, now that my my family that raised me are gone, I might revert to having another family. But, you know, it's a very personal feeling I have about that. Right. I think my, my, I mentioned it already. I was so uh, well accustomed and comfortable with the laws that I didn't need another family. Uh, so they're kind of in between that gap of family and friend. They're, they're a special relationship. And, and you know what? She's going to be 90. So uh, Sophie's doing very, very well for her age. What was it like for you growing up? You know, it was wonderful. Uh, the only thing that complicated my life, uh, because a lot of people think, oh, it must have been terrible. I must have got ticked off. That's and the first thing that would come to mind, yeah. Well, yeah, but I grew up in a small town in, 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 in a farming community, and, and that can be anywhere. You know, it doesn't even have to be in, in North America. You, you know, you're familiar with small towns. You, you tend to look differently at all of the children in your small town than we do in, a, in an urban environment where we tend to keep to ourselves. You know, when we hear that expression, it takes a village to raise a child, that's a cheesy expression, but... The reality is Yorkton, Saskatchewan was, was like a village. It was a you know, city of about 10,000, but it treated me like I was one of its own. And it didn't mourn you know, my presence, but of course Hilda Law had a ton to do with that. You know, they didn't hide me in the back room. They took me out everywhere. They were established in the community. They'd already raised their family, so they were empty nesters. And they just in, embraced my, my difference as opposed to mourning it. And I know that sounds predictable, but that really is exactly what happened. So... You know, I didn't have a lot of tough times. The only thing that was tough for me, I'll be quite frank about this, was the irony of the doctors insisting there was something wrong with me. They kept trying to fix me. You know, they kept taking me to hospitals, giving me different sets of artificial arms, uh, you know, not allowing me to use my feet. In fact, my wife and I were just talking about this yesterday, about, you know, uh, it's another subject, but just how, how, how difficult it, I don't really remember it specifically. It's not that I've blocked it out or, or made a defensive mechanism out of it, but you know what, I sort of accepted. I'm, I have no arms. I have to go into the hospitals. I have to do this, uh, you know, not only because of my mom and dad encouraging it, saying, you know, maybe you can help other people. Mm. Who knows? But the artificial arms were the worst part of my memories. The rest of them were, were really quite, quite amazing. But what were these artificial arms? I mean, what would they do? They would sort of try and stick it on you, or how, how would it work? Well, the, the theory, of course, going back to this time frame, was that if you lose a limb, mm -hmm. you can simply replace it. And that, was a, that, that works for, for amputees. We see in 2014 all of the amazing prosthetics, which ironically, and my wife likes to remind me of this, that all of those tough times of using the mechanical devices, the first pair were made of a heavy wood and plastic compound. It was uh, two arms. They were fitted to a, a jacket that was about a quarter of an inch thick of this other plastic resin that, that attached to my upper body with straps. The whole unit weighed around 17 pounds, and uh, the arms themselves had hooks on the end of each arm that were controlled by cables 
that ran from the hooks uh, up to my shoulders down to straps on my legs, and I would bend my body and contort it to pull on the hooks to open them, and, and the elbows were controlled by locking gears that you would bounce the arm. And it was, it was ridiculous how, how heavy they were, how uncomfortable they were, but the theory was, you know, you have no arms, we'll give you some. Uh, it wasn't that they looked at the embracing side of my feet like my mom did. So it was always a conflict. But, you know, it is what it is. It, it, that time is gone. I haven't had them since I was 15. And, uh, you know, I, I really honestly, this might sound uh, really nice to say this, but I credit them for trying something. Mm. It just didn't work. But then how do you then conduct, I mean, what are the regular day-to-day -day tasks that you can do? What are the ones that you can't do? You know, there's not a lot I can't do. Uh, if you think about your hands, and, and I try to, you know, not make any judgment on people like myself that aren't as capable as I am, but I have very talented feet. But I think the most important thing that my parents gave me, this was the greatest gift they gave me, was not one of, of an arrogance about my independence, but one of simple practicality. I think the hardest thing I had to learn to do was dress myself. Uh, if you think about clothing, going to the bathroom, that was always very, very challenging. Uh, you know, it took me probably till I was in my mid-20s uh, to, to take care of myself. And, and as shocked as some of your listeners might be to hear that, uh, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people, usually people that are paralyzed, uh, you know, have this situation where they simply can't clothe themselves. They simply can't go to the bathroom themselves. And, and that's very personal. But, you know, maybe something for the audience to think about, Vip, is, you know, what would you do? What would you do if you couldn't use your hands? Or how would you go to the bathroom? How would you get dressed? You know, for some people, the hardest part about having a disability isn't the lack of ability, it's the dignity. It's an assault on your dignity. So eventually, I just got tired of asking people for help, and I came up with an idea for clothing with elasticized waistbands that I can wear on my own. And uh, I simply use my legs. Uh, I dance around a little bit. The elastics of my clothes work up to my hips, and then uh, on the edge of a countertop or a toilet seat or a knob on a drawer or whatever's handy, I use them to pull it up the rest of the way. And then... For the rest of my clothing, my shirts, etc., I can just fling those over my head with my foot. But, you know, it's taken a lifetime of practice. I've seen a YouTube video of you, and you're actually driving. I love driving. I steer with my right foot on the wheel and my left foot on the gas. In fact, I can drive any car. Uh, I rent probably about 50 cars a year for my work uh, traveling around as a speaker. So can you imagine that one alone, just walking up to the rental counter and giving them your driver's license with your toes? I've got to be honest, Zip, sometimes I get a kick out of this. It might sound like a pretty uh, sick sense of humor, but I actually get a kick out of watching people's reaction to me. But, again, not in judgment of them, just, you know, you've got to get a laugh out of this one way or the other. So. No, and I'll go back to my reaction. When I met you um, mm. at, at, at the uh, diversity conference a, a few weeks ago, um, I was fascinated with you. And, and when I asked you for your business card, you, you reached into the bag, you took out a wallet, and from the wallet you took out your card, all with your toes. Mm -hmm. First thing I did when I got home was try to do that. And oh, did I, you really? Yeah, I did, and I, 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 I got a muscle cramp from it. <laughs> well, you know, actually, to be, to, you know, not to be humble about this, but when my mom spotted me playing with my toys as a baby using mm -hmm. my toes, she saw that and went, just like you, even in 1960, it was like, well, that's interesting. But let's remember that there was no knowledge, you know, in my mom's head about how to do this. So she went with her instincts. And I, and I can simply say this, that, you know, my instinct is to use my feet. 
it looks amazing to people, but really it's just my natural way of doing things, and it always has been. You know, I think the problem actually, uh, I don't remember when we met if, if there was any attempt at a handshake, but that's the kind of thing that I experience every day. People go to shake my hand, and then I say, well, I can't, I can't really shake your hand, although I can with my foot, but I don't want to make people more uncomfortable than they already are. I've, I've really always been sensitive to that, but really my feet are my hands. They, they work like it. I talk with them. I gesture with them. And indeed, I, I hand people business cards with them. Now, growing up, I mean, you, were, you, you said you were brought up in the village and where people were accustomed to you and things like that. But the moment you started leaving the village and, and, and traveling out, that's where you must have got people's genuine reaction through fascination or fear. How did you handle that? I think by the time I was 18 years old and I'd graduated high school and I'd gone off to college uh, about 800 miles away from where I grew up, mm. I was so ready for it. I often, again, repeat myself, but, you know, my parents' gift to me was at 18, they kicked me, not, not literally kicked me out of the house, but said, okay, you're 18 now, you've graduated high school. What you've accomplished already in your life at 18 years old should be proof that you can do anything in your future. And that was a very encouraging thing for me. I, I, was, I was excited to get out of the house. I was excited to leave the village and go to the city. But what I think was most amazing to me when I got to the city, and this was really personal for me and I think very personal for all college students when they leave, is you're not alone. At least I didn't feel alone. I, I was going to college. I was with a bunch of 18-year-olds. We were all exploring our world. We came from different places, different cities, different communities. And now we're all in one thing. And I was a broadcasting student, so it was even a tighter uh, group of people. So there was about 60 people in our class. I probably was best friends with 40 of them because we just bonded so well. So it was fun. It, you know, it was a little scary. I didn't know anybody. I, I didn't have any friends. I had to figure out how I was going to live and, and be, you know, independent in terms of roommates. But those guys that uh, I lived with took care of me. And, you know, it was just fun. And, and more than anything, I got thinking to myself, you know what, really, this is a pretty predictable line too, but I believed that I could do anything. And, and uh, I just really did. I had that 18-year-old confidence, maybe a smugness to it, but even more importantly, proof that what I'd done was, was just a sampling of what was to come. And your adopted parents, I mean, you bring them in quite a bit. Um, I guess they brought into you a sense of that everything is possible and that you just have to get up and try. Yeah, but don't, let's, not, let's not sugarcoat this, though. And I, mm. and, and I hate to the, the, I resist the temptation to, to, to go to the dark side of this, but it was hard. <laughs> you know, it was hard doing this stuff with my feet. It was hard, the philosophical viewpoint, the believing, you know, trying to figure out why was I born this way? Why did this happen to me? And by the way, when I talked about how most of my childhood was, was embraced, there was a tough time when I was, an, was I, when I was a young man, an adolescent. Well, we all have challenging adolescents, don't we? But, you know, becoming a man. Men have arms. Men have hands. Men have these big, strong shoulders. I had none of those things. And, of course, quite frankly, uh, the gals, they didn't find me all that attractive. Or at least that's not how I perceived it. Of course, part of it was I was a bit of a negative guy because I wasn't feeling too good about who I was. Mm. But I think at the end of the day, my parents showed me not through sugarcoating life, but through throwing up these ideas that, yeah, that's hard, uh, and so what's your excuse? And it really was very much like that. What did you want to be growing up? That's a good question. I've had people ask me that question before. I had no idea when I was a little boy mm. what I wanted to be. You know, I, 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 was, I wasn't silly. I, I thought, you know, like a lot of, in this case, boys, and you know, now girls too, but I thought firefighter, no, can't climb a ladder. Police, no, can't hold a gun. Uh, you know, all these thoughts that were not dream smashing, but mm. just reality. 
just certain things I wouldn't be able to do. But my life turned uh, a corner when I got involved in music, and music was something that was very special to me, and I was 10 years old when I got involved in, in band, and, and I think that's when I started thinking that maybe someday I could be a professional musician. And, and I really did dream about that, but that just didn't go the way it was supposed to go because I think I was destined to go into broadcasting, and that's what I did in college, and that kind of led me to my now career in speaking. But in music, what did you learn? Well, the music story is probably my favorite story of all, and, and I don't want to be long-winded here, but... No, but share it you know, with us. You can, well, if you can picture, my mom, I took a music aptitude test in fifth grade. It was a standard test given to all fifth graders in our town, and I got 96%. So when my mom got a personal phone call from the director of the music programs for the city of, our, of Yorkton, inviting me to join the band, my mom, you know, at, at first was really excited, and then kind of in the back of her head went, hmm, this guy's kind of being really, really idealistic about my son being in the band. So she just literally came out and said it. You know, have you met him or what? He goes, no, I'm just calling people at home today. It's my job. He had never heard of me. So when he found out I had no arms, even though I had 96% on the music aptitude test, he, you know, predictably said, well, okay, you know what? That's obviously not going to work. Uh, I'm sorry if I am offended or embarrassed you and have a nice day. And he hung up the phone. But here was this kind of guy that would end up being a difference maker in my life who figured out a way, six weeks later, my head called my mom back and said, I think I've got an instrument. He mounted a trombone mm. on the side of a wooden chair with metal rods that were, you know, uh, fashioned from old drum stands and clamps that were welded to the top that, if your audience can picture this, it was mounted on the left side of the chair, and as I used my right foot for driving, I used my right foot to move the slide. So when I got into band, not only was it fun, but it really gave me so many different attributes. It taught me discipline. It taught me to practice. It taught me to be proud. It taught me to win. It taught me to lose. It taught me to compete. But more than anything, it gave me pride. I mean, I had pride before, and you know, being who I was in our family, but now, look what I can do, look what I can do. And, and in fact, even more importantly, it led me to other things that I would end up doing with my life, including playing the drums, playing the piano. And I know your audience right now might be listening going, he doesn't really do that. Oh, I love to play music. And, and I think that's why it was a game changer for me, because all of a sudden I wasn't disabled. I was definitely abled. Mm. And I think that's a different mindset. So that's what music did for me. You know, at some point in our conversation a few minutes ago, you said growing up, you obviously um, have the trials and tribulations of teenagers. Um, and whenever you would feel negative, how would you overcome that? My, uh, my parents were quite, uh, there they come. The parents are back into the story again. Hmm. My parents were awesome. But, you know, I talk about all, all the things my mom did. My mom was kind of my primary caregiver. You know, she was the foster mom. Mm -hmm. I don't talk a lot about my dad, but my dad, man, he was a, he was a hard ass. I'll just say it. That's, mm. That was what my dad was like. He wasn't a meanie. He didn't hurt me. He never you know, physically hurt me or anything like that. But he was an old British, old school guy who basically said you know, all these words and all these stories. You know, he, he would tell me uh, things like he was, he was a, a student of Martin Luther King, which is an odd thing if you think about it for a British uh, mechanic living in Western Canada you know, uh, looking at someone like Dr. King and what his words were, but he would always say things to me like, you know, son, someday there will be a time when people will not judge you by the fact that you have no arms. They'll judge you by the strength of your character. So he would take that phrase that Dr. King used and, and twist it. Right. But he always had words. So I'd come home having a bad day, 
and we'd have a little talk about it. And before I knew it, he was always focusing on the good side, the positive messaging. You know, he probably could have been a speaker himself, but he was too humble as well. But it was just reality. You know, reality was I have no arms. Oh, oh well, too bad, so sad. Now what's your next move? It was always what's the next move. And I think so. It was very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Very round. Yeah. What are you going to do? <laughs> it sounds. Well, it's ironic, though, isn't it? Because maybe he couldn't take this whole positive messaging public, but you've done it for him. Yeah, that's probably exactly right, Vip. In fact, I think what's really funny about all of this is when I quit my radio job to go into the speaking business, my parents were actually quite destroyed. Why? Well, they thought it was arrogant. You know, what are you doing going out and bragging about what you can do with your feet? What are you doing playing the drums on stage? What are you doing talking about all the things we did for you? That's, That's private. That's family. Yeah, but you know what? Sometimes you've got to make a sacrifice of your privacy so that you can make a public point. And I was really, if you think about it, the timing of this was also very important. 1981 was when I got out of radio and started going into activism for people with disabilities. But I found out very quickly that too many of the activists that I met, right. I'm going to say it, I didn't like them. They were just too pissed off. They were too angry. They were walking around going, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. And I kept going, no, you're not. And I just wasn't towing, you know, the, the, the company banner. So I kind of got out of activism and realized that <laughs> it's going to sound pretty good now, isn't it, to say this, but I'm just a positive guy. So why not make a living out of it? And that's exactly what I decided to do in around 1985, 86. I tried politics, but by 1988, I determined that I was destined to be a speaker, and I've been very proud of that ever since. Is that what you think your purpose in your life is? Absolutely. So... If someone was to ask you, what do you do and who do you do it for, what would you say? Well, you know, I, I, in fact, I'm not even sure if I want to call myself a motivational speaker um, you know, or, or an inspirational speaker. I'm a professional speaker. Mm. I make a living from speaking at conventions and, and, and conferences and schools and different events. But, but you know, I'm not, I'm not just trying to give me the sales pitch here. I think at the end of the day, I can sit in a food court in an airport having a hamburger between my toes and prove a point to people without even opening my mouth. You know, I'm just living the words. I'm, I'm walking the talk, as they say. And I think, you know, it just became obvious to me that if I wanted to do something I had to make some money at, this was the most logical conclusion. But at the end of the day, yeah, I'm, I'm very much a believer that this was my, my fate, my destiny. And, and, and at the end of the day, you know, it's not about look at me, look what I've done. It's about hopefully some of the people that I've, you know, had an influence on and even more importantly, some of those that are struggling so they can see maybe that, that, you know, life's not always an easy go, but we have to give it the go no matter what we have. We were exchanging emails a few days ago, and I noticed one sentence that you wrote that sort of resonated with me. Um, you said, I hate whiners, people <laughs> who whine. And, 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 and we both share that in common. Well, uh, yeah. why, why do you hate them? Because I think it's, 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 it's unfortunate that so many people don't realize what they've got. You know, we take life for granted. We, you know, we, somewhere along the line, somebody told us that we deserve stuff. You know, I find it fascinating. I'm, I'm, I'm in Canada. You're in the heart of, of America in New York City. And we, we also shared this little bit of, of conversation via email before, didn't we, that I think what's funny about America, and, and this isn't meant to be disrespectful, but, you know, they call it the, the, the land of dreams. Dreams can come true in America. That's true, but they kind of forgot about the part about working, <laughs> earning, mm. you know, getting your dreams come true. Don't just go to Disneyland and, and you know, say, well, I'm here, where's my dream? It doesn't work that way. 
So a lot of people, when their dreams don't come true, they complain about it. They blame people about it. They blame the world. Oh, it's, it's, I'm a victim. And I just don't like that. It's just the way I've always been in my life, uh, and not to pass my judgment on, on complete strangers, but I just don't like people that look at their lives and, and, and fail to see what they've got. Now, you've written a book called Alvin's Laws of Life. Mm-hmm. What made you write that? Well, first of all, it seemed like, and it still seems like this today, that my life just always evokes stories. You know, stuff happens to me that, that may not happen to other people. And, and the stories of my life uh, were simply something that were compounding in my head. And then I got involved in the speaking business, and this was, of course, <clears throat> a long time ago. But, you know, I tried uh, the idea of, of pushing my, my storylines to publishers. I wanted to obviously have a book because that's kind of a badge of honor when you're in the speaking business. But it occurred to me, I'm not much of a writer. <laughs> you know, I'm a good speaker, but writing, that, and it's not because I don't have any arms. It's just mm. my brain doesn't work like an author's brain. So I probably had over a thousand pages of stories, just stories, things that have happened to me, things that I've experienced. And, uh, and, I, and I gave actually that, that, that whole pile of paper to my wife one weekend, and I said, do you think this could be a book? And when she finished it, actually it didn't take her very long, her mm. first question was, what's your point? So they were just a bunch of rambling stories. The, the, the book turned into 148 pages, and I called it Alvin's Laws of Life, because it occurred to me, this isn't me just bragging about what I've done in my life or, or you know, just recounting my stories. These are examples that I want to give to people that can help them in their lives. And when I've talked about not liking whiners, it's not that I avoid them either. In fact, that's probably my point, is I'm trying to work with people to not you know, say, well, I'm better than you, but to say, why can't you just try this? So my laws are essentially my guide to what has happened in my life and what's allowed me my independence, and hopefully it can help others with theirs. So is the philosophy of the book something like, I gave it a shot, what's your excuse? Yeah, a little bit like that. But, you know, if you read the stories in my book and if Mm. you read the laws, the laws are, by the way, this was me trying to be clever, Vip. I call it Alvin's Laws of Life. because I noticed the acronym, that's right. Yeah, and actually there's five of them, and they actually spell my name. So it's like a marketing thing, too. So it's A-L-V-I-N and the five laws. Essentially what happened is when I decided to call it this, I was doing uh, some sales stuff with a company in Canada, Mm. and I wanted them to have their own personal mission statements, like companies have their corporate mission statement. You know, Fox probably has one. I wanted to give it to the, the sales team but have them develop each of their own personal mission statements of their lives. So I decided to use first names and I decided to use mine. So I was doing this in a kind of a workshop format, and my five laws are also five paragraphs, each a paragraph for each letter of my lame, and they, they spell Alvin. So it's attitude, learning, valuing your life and spirit, imagination, and never giving up. And they came out of my core. So my gut instinct when I wrote these was the five laws and attitude and what they represent are also a pledge of the meaning of these words in my life and what they've done. And hopefully that kind of intention that we hear about uh, out there in the world, you know, is, is, is one of the most important things. You know, we can accomplish a lot of great things, uh, you know, if, if we put our heart to it, but we have to, we have to work hard to get them, and that intention is a big part of what changes the rules. Let's go through the, uh, the acronym. Let's start with attitude. Sure. Why is that important? Well, you know, what I wrote about attitude, and, I, and I'm, I'm just going to, you know, very quickly go through this one. Mm. I, I think attitude is more than being positive. And this is what I wrote. It's, it's, it's a way of looking at our life, you know, ours and everybody's. 
And then, of course, the great quote, it's said to be everything because I think it is everything. But here's my favorite line about attitude. It defines who we are and what we become. It defines who we are and what we become. Yeah. Well, we hear, we hear this all the time. You know, the people in my business, it's better to have a positive attitude than a negative one. I mean, duh, everybody knows that. But attitude to me is way more than just sort of a cliche from my business. Attitude is a way of presenting your, your, yourself to the world every single day. And I actually believe that it alters our energy. With a positive attitude, we can have positive energy, and that positive energy actually is healthy for us. It can even, I believe that positive energy can even heal. Uh, you know, Americans especially love to go to the drugstore and line up on, on pharmaceuticals, don't they? And this is one of my pet peeves. I sit and watch American commercials all the time for the latest, greatest thing that can cure you in 10 minutes. Oh, and by the way, be careful if you take these because you can Yeah, that's said really fast. Well, why, do they, why, why are people so easily hooked on pharmaceuticals? You know, we talk about the war against drugs. What about the war against pharmaceuticals? Well, one thing, though, with a lot of my guests, they all talk about attitude as well, and, 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 and I get that. But mm-hmm. the real attitude comes to test when things aren't going your way. Absolutely. Then that's where I never seem to be convinced on, on from my guests on how do you then mold your attitude when you're on your 100th or 1,000th failure uh, and, and you've sort of it's things are not working or you're frustrated. Um, what happens then? Well, first of all, we don't all live in caves. Mm. So we're hopefully not making this journey of life by ourselves. And if we are, uh, that's unfortunate. Mm. I mean, I'm living proof that I I, I have so many good friends, and those friends have helped me get through the tough times. But here's the deal. I've been very selective of who I spend time with. Mm -hmm. So in other words, I, I don't know too many people that are of that category we talked earlier. Whiners. When my friends all get together, and they can be from all different walks of life, it's really fascinating to watch them all in the same room together because they have the one thing in common, and that's me. But then they have the second thing in common, and that's they're all life lovers. Right. But also, here's the kicker, most of my friends have been through something. Okay, so I've got a really good friend. His name is Warren McDonald. Warren lost his legs in a mountain climbing accident in New Zealand when he was 28 years old. Uh, that would piss you off, wouldn't it, to lose your legs? But Warren doesn't see it that way. Warren sees it that it was something he did. He went past an out-of-bounds sign, he had an accident, he lost his legs, but he had his life. So when you think about it, that's kind of modeling or almost preachy, but the fact is he lives a different kind of life mm-hmm. because he lost his legs. I live a different kind of life because I have no arms. So what are the things that are going to get in my way that are going to bring me down, that are going to depress me? When, I'm on, when my mom died in 96, of course I was sad, and of course it hurt. And it, you know, it took me a good six months to get back on my feet and be the same person I was. We all go through these things. But the point is, why do we keep on trying to find the source of our success somewhere out there? The source of our success is inside of us. I think the most important thing we can do is spend time with people that make us better, not bring us down. L, what learning, right? Yeah, the learning one is one of my favorite of, of the list because, mm. you know, a lot of people, I'll, I'll go to a school and I'll have somebody come up to me after I've done my show and they'll say, oh, Mr. Lyme, learning disabled. Well, I've got a line on that one. I say, no, no, you're, you're teaching disabled. We can all learn. Every one of us can learn. Now, we may not all be capable of Mensa-like intelligence, but we can all learn. And I think the difference with, with what a lot of people say is, well, you know, school is where you learn. No, 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 no. Life is where you learn. So I take a look at the things that you learn from life. But more importantly, I think what happens is 
we need to look at all of the things that we know, but even more importantly, the knowledge that is around us. You know, it seems like the Internet. You're on the Internet all the time. It's full of all these people that know everything. Mm. All of a sudden, is everyone's an expert. Well, fine. What makes you an expert? But the point is not, I want to be famous because of what I know. I think the point is I want to be able to grow with what I know. And you don't know anything unless you go out and learn it. So not only did I learn to use my feet, but I learned to do a lot of things that people would never even imagine capable because I'm so curious about life. I want to see what I can learn from life. I want to go see things. I want to go visit places. I don't want to read about it in the paper or see it on television. I want to come to New York. I was in New York just not too long after the towers went down. I'd seen the horrible pictures. We'd all seen it on television, but I needed to come there to be in the middle of all of that violence, just to see it for myself, to feel that that feeling and then you know try as I could to understand why this was such a disaster so you know those are the things that I live with every day I, I like to experience it and that's how I learn does learning in itself also help attitude because then you're focused um, and if you have a good attitude you can learn more and if you learn more it helps your attitude absolutely my wife Darlene uh, is, is a feng shui master so mm. she does feng shui uh, for offices for buildings for homes and, and a lot of people may wonder what that is it's a long story of what it is, but essentially it is the idea that we have energy all around us. We need to put it in the right category, and positive energy is something that is out there. You know, it's, it's in a forest when we're on a picnic. It's by a river if we're fishing. It's, it's when we're walking out on a, a snowy day and here in Canada when it's just sunny and lovely and the snow is glistening. That's an energy feeling. Well, we can actually replicate that in our homes, but my point is that I had to learn that from her, to learn that not only is feng shui real, but attitude is also energy. I've learned that. I and, didn't know that when I was 20 years old. And what is the V? Oh, the V was a funny one. When I wrote my paragraphs, because actually I gave myself a promise that I would write my laws uh, first time. I, I didn't rewrite them 10 times. They were all first rights. But mm. the V started with victim. And as soon as I wrote the word victim, my wife looked at it and went, that's not you. I said, sorry, Are you, I am a victim. She goes, yeah, but you value your life. That's a better V. So that's kind of what I, I, I here, here's what I actually wrote about it. I think too many people live the life of victim, and that's, you know, it's too bad. Bad things happen to good people. There are victims. I'm not trying to lessen that. The trouble is I've never heard an answer to the question, why me? Never. I've never had, you know, I always, why me? You hmm. never get an answer. And the trouble is we, uh, often victims get stuck. You know what I mean? That, that something so horrible has happened to them that they get stuck in that moment and they, they're not sure how they can move past it. And, you well, know, if you, again, if you, if you think of yourself as a victim, I, I, I take it that totally affects your attitude, and then that in turn affects your learning. Absolutely. You know, we, we tend to crawl into a hole when something bad has happened to us, and that's a genuine medical problem. A lot of people confuse bad attitude with mental health problems. So when you say value, what are we meant to value? You just see the good things in your life. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is that you have, you see the good things in your life. They become your gratitude, your, your blessing. I, 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 met, I met a lot of amazing people in my life. I met Zig Ziglar, who was, of course, a legendary speaker. But I, had a, I met him, and I actually talked to him for like 45 minutes. I couldn't believe how much time he gave me. And he's the one that coined the phrase attitude of gratitude. Well, I didn't know that one. And then when I started listening to that, those words, attitude of gratitude, boy, that works for me. You know, just having an attitude of every single day. How lucky am I? So in your, you life, in your, life, in your life, what are you valuing? Oh, just that I, uh, my friendships, mm-hmm. my family, the love that I have in my life, uh, my music, my friendships, my work, my peers, 
There's so many things to be thankful for. But that was the home that I grew up in. You know, we were constantly saying prayers of thanks. Now, I'm not an overly religious guy at 54 years old, but my parents were. But they looked at life with that optic. They saw the value, not the victim. Eyes for imagination. Yeah, that's where we make uh, everything happen in our hearts. Because if we believe that we can visualize it, you know, I always talk about my favorite example of that is the band director. You know, think about this. You get on the phone with a mom and you're finding out that this kid that you're talking about has this almost 100% ability in music and then you find out he's got no arms. Well, most people wouldn't take their imagination past that point. Mm -hmm. And I've always loved the notion of this band director going, no arms, trombone. I mean, that's a pretty big leap, isn't it? But yet he saw it in his head. He designed it with a couple of teachers at the school. He put it on a chair and he presented me with something that gave me a reason to imagine. So I imagined all the places that I would play, you know, Carnegie Hall and all these images in my head of being famous and, and all of the things that imagination did. I had to imagine how to do things with my feet because the life is not designed for people without arms. So it's creativity. So it's, it's creativity through learning then. Absolutely. But it's even more importantly, acting on the vision. You know, we can all have a vision and we can all have an imagination of something that we're going to be. You know, mm. we, we talk about sports visualizing a, a world championship. Well, the, the world championship doesn't come to us by simply visualizing it. We actually have to win the game. <laughs> but all of the preparation, all of the mindset, all of the imagination, all of the learning, it all comes together to form, you know, what for all people in life it can, can be a championship. And N? Never give up. That's, that's my favorite one because it's so easy to say, isn't it? Never give up. It's pretty hard to do, though. But I've just learned that never giving up is a mindset. And that's essential for everyone who's trying to do a New Year resolution. Yeah, resolutions are a funny thing, aren't they? Because we all talk about wanting to be better, but then we think it's just kind of going to happen on its own. And by the way, I, I'm going to add something about this with resolutions. I've never really used them. I, I've, I've I was never going to ask you January. what your New Year's resolution was. I never is. had one. You never had one. Oh, no, no, because I was constantly, I didn't need New Year's to remind me that I need to upgrade my life. No, because my philosophy is, if you know, people ask me what my New Year resolution is, and I always say it's just to continue to have belief, because if I have a belief, then everything else usually follows. As long Absolutely. as I'm doing, you know, following, in, in, in a similar way, um, I think what resonated with me was uh, the Alvin concept of success, of having a very healthy attitude, um, continuing to learn, uh, having value or valuing what I have, uh, the imagination, the creativity, and the never giving up. Well, even, but thank you. But, but even more importantly, it's the idea that all of us, mm -hmm. and, and let me just say this one more time, this hasn't been easy. You know, resolutions aren't easy. That's, that's the trouble. We want to take the one that's the easiest to do. And we don't realize that some of the ones that we want to accomplish are very, very difficult. And we can't do them alone. That's so is it one. dangerous to have too ambitious a resolution? Well, I think instead of having a too, too uh, ambitious uh, resolution, we should be thinking about, you know, what is it that we're trying to accomplish with the resolution? Now, let's just take one. If our resolution is to quit smoking because we smoke and that's bad for us, well, that's a good one. But, you know, why do you have to have a date to pick on, on that one? You're going to end up having to have more of a, of a routine, and it's going to take you probably a year just to get over that kind of problem, and not too many people are willing to put in that work. But you've got you to gotta get around people that will help you to get your resolutions. But even more importantly, and this is my favorite way of looking at it, 
what are we trying to become with the resolution? Hmm. See, I, I like to I like to take a look at my life and see what's there, and and you know, and not not necessarily see something down the road that I can be. And and I think you know that that kind of is counter to what I just said about imagination. But it all starts internally. You know, it starts with an internal calmness, almost a meditation that I do every single day about, you know, what is it that I, I, I need to improve about myself. Uh, but it's never, never just one day that I set my motion in that. I'm, I'm constantly trying to improve my life. Um, but I think even more importantly, a resolution is, on a positive note, an intention. And, you know, Wayne Dyer talks about intentions all the time as one of my favorite authors. But, you know, intentions are more than just a, a warm and fuzzy thought. Intentions are actually setting our world towards that direction of what we want to achieve. So do people usually confuse resolution with just being a destination and they forget the journey and, and how much work it takes to get there? Because, you know, we both know that the gyms are going to be full on January 2nd. Mm-hmm. So everyone's got this whole thing about losing weight, and it's not necessarily because they want a healthier body. They just want to fit into their clothes again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's another good one, isn't it? And in fact, maybe even more importantly, there's a difference between losing weight mm. for health and losing weight for vanity. But I think society has become more vain than ever before. Well, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is we, 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 we take, you know, that's, if, when people see me mm. with my wife, right. they find it hard to believe that I'd be married to someone as attractive as my wife, Darlene. Well, you now, and me both. Statement. That, that's where when people see me and my wife, they say the same thing. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny, isn't it, how we see couples, but people can't imagine, especially guys, they can't imagine how a guy without arms would be able to attract an attractive partner into, into his or her life. And I think it's really just our, our, our energy. My wife says that when she met me, one of the most amazing things was she was not looking at me going, man, that's a good-looking guy. I mean, what was she attracted to, the biceps? No, she was attracted to authenticity. And that's the trouble with, with, with this whole idea of resolutions is what are we trying to accomplish with our resolution? Is it, is it a selfish thing or is it so we can be a better person, so we can be better to the people around us? Well, one thing I liked about you when I, when I heard your speech was you're very real. There's no, um, there's little, there's an element of philosophical um, background to it, but you're actually just very to the point. Um, you address what people are thinking right up front. And, and obviously, your, your, your sense of humor is fabulous. Um, and I loved you playing on the piano. That was great. <laughs> so when you go and give your speeches, what are people calling you for? Well, I believe that the most functional element of my career and my work, and mm. I've been in this business a long time, and I'm, you know, not to brag about this, but I'm even in the Canadian Professional Speakers Hall of Fame, is I'm just really, really good at what I do. And that is either setting the stage for a set of meetings that people are having and they're going to be asked to do certain things. If it's a sales meeting, they're probably going to be asked to do more hard work. If it's just a conference where they're going as a peer association, they're going to be looking at what's going on in their particular industry. Mm. But they don't all want to talk shop. People want to hear a story of a human being that is the real deal, somebody that inspires them, somebody that has accomplished something in, in whatever a judgment factor is achievement. Right. And they want to be inspired by the reality of that person being in the room. It's one of the reasons that I'm kind of against electronic meetings. You know, and, and I'm not trying to 
down, downplay the whole idea of, of, of money and how it's expensive to go to a meeting in person. But we have to go in person because we have to feel the energy of that person that we're meeting and, more importantly, the energy of the speaker. So I take that energy to the beginning of a meeting or more commonly actually at the end of a meeting when people are just bagged because they've been meeting for three days and they're tired of talking shop. I can send them off on a, on a positive note at the end of the conference believing that every reason that they came for that conference is, is a valid one, that they can accomplish their dreams and goals and they can use their mindset of that guy playing the piano with his feet as another reality check, and that's kind of what I do. And I'm entertaining too. I always, oh, you're like extremely said, ent- you're extremely entertaining. And I've got a minute. Oh, I, I've got a minute left. Fun. I've got a minute left, okay. and I want to ask you: What's your message to our listeners about their challenges in their life? What's your message? As you begin the new year, simply consider this: We've all got things of value in our lives. We've all got things that are important, that meaning are meaningful to us. Focus on those things this year. Count what you have. Stop kind of imagining that the, your happiness is out there somewhere. And as you said it earlier, it isn't the destination. It's the everyday journey that we should focus on. Where can people get your book? At alvinlaw.com. And how can, oh, okay. And, and if they wanted to get in touch with you, they just get onto the website? Yeah, just alvinlaw.com. Or they can simply just Google Alvin Law, and that'll come up as well. We don't sell our book anywhere else except on our, on our site. But uh, there's also some really good video on there showing me doing my thing as well. So. Oh, there's some brilliant video, and, and even on YouTube when I saw it, I was just mesmerized. Alvin, my friend, thank you so much. Zip, it's been my pleasure, and it was a, it was a, a chance meeting, wasn't it? It was, wasn't it? Some things are just destined to happen. Well, there's a lot of those meetings that we miss because we're not paying attention to the moment. Well, I hope you consider it a fortunate meeting. My wife still doesn't about meeting me, but anyway. <laughs> happy New Year, my friend, and Happy New Year to all your listeners. 2015 is going to be a, an awesome year. If you believe in that, then that's a good start. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Your comments and your followers so very welcome on my Twitter account at Vip Jaswell on my Facebook page. I'll be back next Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Until then, I wish you a wonderful new year ahead with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a happy week ahead. <laughs>